my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. Um, a few years ago, I saw this documentary on the local TV station, on a local TV station, and it was about a business started by a young married couple that restores furniture. They take furniture that people are just going to toss away or sell for cheap, and they transform these old pieces into beautiful, functional furniture. So, for example, they took a, a desk, broken down kind of desk, and they, they did something unique with it. They put a sink in the middle of it and made a, a countertop, a vanity out of it. They took a rickety old cabinet and, um, and they transformed it into a toy chest. Uh, the, the, the husband is the carpenter and the woodworker. The, the wife is the artist and the designer. And she took this toy chest and she painted it white with beautiful, or cabinet, and she transformed it into this toy chest for, for children. And then one of the other things that they do is that they work with a nonprofit here in St. Louis to transform people's lives. They take at-risk youth and ex-convicts, and they train them in skills in carpentry and woodworking to make a difference in their life so they can have a better life. Now, what really caught my attention, and the reason I remember this interview, is this couple said, our work reflects our Christian faith. They said, we have been transformed by Christ, and the work that we do symbolizes the transformation that happens in our life. And their, their business is called A New Nature. Well, I thought of that because in our gospel reading this morning, we see the risen Christ rebuilding a broken man, the Apostle Peter. Uh, John tells us in this section of Scripture that this is the third time Verse 14, that Jesus came uh, to the disciples, was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Uh, so Jesus appeared multiple times to multiple people. The resurrection of Jesus, some people try to explain it away and say, well, these disciples were hallucinating. Well, no, hallucination doesn't happen multiple times to multiple people. The same people seeing the same things. No, this is a historical event. The risen Christ comes to them. It's a great miracle and they encounter him, and they have a dialogue with him. So this is the third time that Jesus revealed himself to all the disciples, but he's really coming here for Peter. That's what John focuses on, to restore the Apostle Peter. Because Jesus has a great work for the Apostle to do. He's going to become a leader, a spokesperson for the Apostles. But I think we can apply the lessons here, this conversation we can apply some lessons to our own life because all disciples of Christ have failed him at one point or another. And we still stumble. But the same risen Lord who restored the Apostle Peter has restored us and continues to do that work of restoration. So what I really want to focus here on is those verses where Jesus and Peter are in this dialogue in verses 15 through 19. And let's look at this restoration process that Jesus takes Peter through. The starting point for this work of restoration is love. It really is a matter of love. Jesus wants to restore this relationship of love with the Apostle Peter. Jesus comes to Peter in love. 
Jesus doesn't toss Peter aside and say, I'm going to start over with somebody new, but he comes to this broken man, and he comes to him in love. He's demonstrated already to the apostle Peter his love for him on the cross. He comes to Peter, the risen Christ, bearing the marks of love, his nail-scarred hands, his side that's been pierced. And now he asks Peter three times, do you love me? Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three times. He's trying to elicit a confession of love. He wants to hear it from the lips of Peter. He says in verse 15, Simon Peter, or Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? And some people wonder, what does he mean by more than these? And there's some commentary agreement among the commentators on what Jesus is referring to when he says more than these. Is he talking about the fishing nets and the boat? Do you love me more than your profession of fishing? But I, I think what Jesus is getting at here is, do you love me more than these other disciples? I think that fits the story better because if you remember when Jesus predicted that all of his disciples were going to scatter and fall away, Peter spoke up, not surprising, and said, not me, Lord, I'm not going to fall away. He said it emphatically, the text says. And, and he said, I will follow you if it means prison. I will follow you if it means death. I am going to stand by you. And he followed Jesus up to the point where he gets to the courthouse of the high priest. Jesus is being interrogated. And then Peter falls away, doesn't he? Three times he denies Jesus. Not once, not twice. Three times, even with cursing, he denies that he knows his Lord. And it says in the Gospels that when Peter did that, he wept bitterly. So he was overcome with shame and with grief and with guilt that he had denied the Lord Jesus. And so now Jesus says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And notice how Peter responds. He says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, but he doesn't add more than these. He's had to put away his number one disciple mug. He's been humbled. He's been humbled by his failure. That's one of the things that I think God does. That's one of the ways that God redeems our failures and even our sin. Uh, is that he uses those sins and failures to humble us so that we can then serve him in humility and serve others in humility. And we don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. It's not that the sin and failure is good in and of itself. Of course not. I mean, this hurt Christ that his disciples, not just Peter, but all of the disciples fell away. And we know it hurt Peter. But Christ uses this to teach Peter humility. And so... Peter becomes a great leader partly because of his humility from here on out. In fact, I think maybe Peter was thinking about this when he wrote in one of his letters in 2 Peter 5, verses 5 through 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Maybe he's remembering his own failures. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and in the proper time, he will exalt you. God wants to exalt you in the proper time 
after you have been sufficiently humbled. So the main thing, though, that Christ wants to do here in this encounter, the primary thing is to restore this relationship of love that Peter had with Christ. Christ comes to him in love and he wants to elicit this confession of love. At the heart of a restoration process with Jesus is this relationship of love that he calls us to. Because we have been made, the main thing is, we have been made to know the love of God in Christ. That has to be primary. That has to be front and center in our life as disciples of Christ. We talk a lot in the church about serving Christ. We talk a lot about obeying Christ, glorifying Christ, and serving His church. All that's important. But the main thing is, do you love me? Jesus is asking Peter. And Jesus is asking us. Everything else follows from loving Christ. Then everything is properly aligned, even our service for him. Do you love me, Peter? He wants to stir this up, this love that Peter has for Christ. He wants to hear him say it. I read a biography of a great preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones. Some of you may know the name. He was in the 20th century in London. And uh, a guy named Ian Murray wrote a biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And at the end of his life, Ian Murray went to Martin Lloyd and was talking to him about his life and his ministry, and they were just kind of reviewing what had happened. He's an amazing man of God, an amazing preacher. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones was nearing the end of his life, he's retired, he's getting sick, he knows he doesn't have much more uh, time on this earth, he said to Ian Murray something like this. He said, our greatest danger as Christians is to live from our activity. The ultimate test, now he's applying this to preachers, but he said the ultimate test of a preacher is what he feels like when he can't preach. Our relationship to Christ should be our supreme cause for joy. And that struck me when I read that. And that's true for all of us, that the danger that we have as Christians, ladies and gentlemen, in the church is that our activity becomes a substitute for a relationship with Christ. Do you love me? That's the starting point. So whether we're preachers, whether we're clergies, whether we work in the church, whether we're Christian parents trying to raise our children in a godly way in this world, whether we're students, whether we're Christians in the marketplace trying to make a difference for the glory of God in this world, the primary thing, the main thing, is this relationship of love with Christ. And so what Jesus is doing is saying to Peter, okay, the past is the past. You failed. You've, you've made some mistakes. The, the blood of the cross covers that. But right now, where are you at? Do you love me? And then we can go forward. But let's emphasize the relationship is the primary thing. Part of this restoration process is also then, I've got a work for you to do. If you love me, I've got something for you to do. And he calls Peter here to be a shepherd, doesn't he? Which is a pastoral office, a pastoral role. The word pastor means shepherd. And so Jesus says to the apostle, this is the work that I have for you to do. Verse 15, feed my lambs. Nurturing the people of God. Tend my sheep, verse 16. Caring for the people of God. 
healing them. Feed my sheep, verse 16. Nurture the flock of Christ. Feed them, heal them through the word of God. And notice, and this is important for us who are clergy, that Jesus says to Peter, don't, he doesn't say, feed your sheep. He says, they're my sheep. They're mine. You are an under-shepherd of Christ, and you're to care for my flock. That's your responsibility, but they're not yours. Feed my sheep. And that's what Peter does. He does it through the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. As an apostle, God gives him an inspired word to speak. And he's written this word out in the New Testament, the apostle Peter has. And so one of the main responsibilities of a pastor is to feed the flock of Christ, the Word of God. Jesus is getting ready to ascend to his father. He passes the baton of leadership, as it were, to the apostle Peter. He's still the head of the church. Peter is under Jesus, and the other apostles are under Jesus. Peter doesn't have primacy, it's another topic altogether, over all the apostles. You can see that in the book of Acts. Peter does not have primacy over them, but he is a spokesperson and a leader. But just read the books of Acts, and you can see how the apostles interact with one another. The idea that Peter has primacy over them, not there. But he is a leader, and the priority, it's interesting, what's the priority for these apostles? It is to feed the people the word of God. And so a healthy church is a church that feeds people with the word of God. Jesus doesn't say to Peter, okay, Peter, administrate my flock or fundraise with my flock or develop a five-point, five-year plan with my flock. All that might be important, but it's primarily the priority, feed my people with the word of God. And so a healthy church is one where the pastor is preaching and teaching the word of God and the people of God value God's word and they're feeding on it themselves and they're feeding other people. They're passing on the word of God to other people. This is Jesus' charge to Peter. We all, as disciples of Christ, have a job to do. Bishop Ross made that point last week, remember, in his sermon where he quoted from Ephesians chapter 2, we are his workmanship, all of us are his workmanship created in Jesus Christ for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. God has given all of his people a work to do. But the point here is that our past failures do not disqualify us from a present work or a future work. Peter is a broken man, but Jesus comes to him and says, I still have a job for you to do. Our past failure does not disqualify us from a present work. Now, Jesus disciplines people, especially leaders, and he might sideline us for a while, put us on the bench, but it doesn't mean you're there permanently because Jesus invites us to be partners in this mission of restoration and redemption. But I think that's such a liberating message for our culture because our culture is so harsh and unforgiving and I think it's been exacerbated by the social media culture that we're in, the environment. I mean, you make a mistake now. I, I'm so glad that they didn't have Facebook and Instagram when I was a kid. How about you? <laughs> I did some really dumb things. And uh, I'm glad that it didn't get passed around on Facebook and Instagram. Should I tell a story on myself? <laughs> In eighth grade, on a dare, 
I pulled the fire alarm at school. That was a dramatic day. That was, a, that was an interesting day. I'm so glad there wasn't Facebook and Instagram that day. And I got a big slap on the wrist, but it was obvious that I was so scared and upset, and I thought that I had done something so stupid that the principal kind of let me escape. But, you know, he had to go out and talk to the firemen and the police and all that. I'm glad that I didn't grow up with Facebook and Instagram. I might have been branded a delinquent and sent to reform school. Who knows what would have happened. But my point is this, you know, our culture likes to kick people when they're down and likes to replay it over and over and over again. But the message of Jesus Christ is one of restoration. No matter our past failures, no matter really even our current struggles, Christ still wants to use us and he can restore us and give us a work to do. And that infuses our life with meaning and purpose and makes a difference in the lives of others. So, What is Christ calling you to do? Don't say, I'm not qualified. I've blown it too much. Look to him and his love and realize he has a work for you to do. Who do you need to share the word of God with? Neighbor, friend, family member. Who needs to be encouraged and fed by the word of God through your lips and your life? So Christ restores us. He calls us to love him. He calls us to a work. And then the final thing we see is Jesus saying this to Peter, the, 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 the final words here, follow me to the very end. Follow me. This has been a really emotionally charged conversation that Jesus has had with Peter. And at one point it says that, that Peter was grieved, that Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? You know that I love you, Lord. Well, this is painful for Peter. But here it gets even more difficult. And there's sort of this ominous tone as Jesus says to Peter, follow me. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And we know the tradition, what the early church said to the Apostle Peter is under Nero, he was crucified during the persecution in Rome. A later tradition has it, now this isn't as solid, but a later tradition has it that he was um, crucified upside down. Again, that's a, that's a later tradition that's not as solid. But there's probably good reason to believe the early tradition that Peter did end his life a martyr for Christ and it was crucified. You will stretch out your hands. See, this is a prediction about what's going to happen to him. But he says, I still want you to follow me. So Jesus is calling Peter in this restoration to a long-term commitment, and he doesn't promise a primrose path. He, He actually promises there's going to be suffering that's going to come as a result of following me. And that's what we see in Peter's life in the book of Acts the beatings, the imprisonment, the persecution, and then we know from later tradition that he did die a martyr for Christ. What was it that kept Peter bound to the Lord Jesus? From this moment on, what kept him bound was this restoration, this work that Christ had done in him. He knows now the deep love of Christ. He's seen it on the cross. 
He hears it in Jesus' voice here as Jesus restores him. He knows now that the life of Christ is greater than the power of death itself. And so he's going to follow Christ through the very end. And that is what caused him to persevere to the very end. He knows the risen Christ, his love and his life and his power. And that's the same thing that encourages us to pursue following Christ through the difficulty of life and when we go through suffering. If we have experienced the restoration of Christ in our life, if He has rebuilt us and remade us, if He has let us know of His love and His power, it binds us to Him. And it fuels us for long-term commitment. There's a lot of talk these days, maybe you've heard a lot of talk among educators and leaders about perseverance and resilience, resilience training. And some people call it grit. Grit. There's a social psychologist named Angela Duckworth. She gave this TED Talk. Maybe you've seen it or heard about it. On grit. And, and Angela Duckworth, she studied cadets at West Point to predict who would make it to the end or who would fall away. She studied uh, groups of students who were competing in the National Spelling Bee to predict who would advance the farthest. She looked at successful business leaders and salespeople. And she concluded that the greatest predictor of success was not really IQ, wasn't EQ, wasn't raw talent, EQ, emotional intelligence, you know. Uh, it was grit. It was perseverance. It was having a long-term goal and sticking with it even through failure. And she says in her talk, now how do you get grit? Because this is what she wants to teach students in education and other people to have a successful and meaningful life. And she said, the problem is we don't know how to get grit. There's not a pill for grit yet. But when it comes to following Jesus Christ, the, the grit comes from knowing that he's alive. And that he's done a work in me. And that his death cleansed me from sin. His death revealed the great love of God in my, for me. His Holy Spirit is a power working in me. And that's what sustains us for the long haul. That's where the grit comes from. And so I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, is still in the restoration business. You know, I can look at places in my life where I could have really gone off the wrong path. But the risen Christ broke in in mercy and grace and love. He said, do you love me? I have a work for you. Follow me. That's made all the difference in my life. And I know it has in yours as well. So thankful that Christ restores people and that we as a church get to say that to a hurting and broken world. People come in, we can say, guess what? There's a God who loves you. He's got a plan and purpose for your life, and he wants to restore you for his glory. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do thank you that you in Jesus Christ have restored us, that you call us to work for your glory, that you love us, Lord. Please uh, deepen our commitment and our devotion and our love to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.